1 John chapter 2, we uh, looked a couple of weeks ago at chapter 1 and uh, covered the whole chapter in one message, and I enjoyed studying it and uh, looking back at 1 John chapter 1 so much that I thought, you know, we might as well just keep on going through the book of 1 John, so I don't know that we'll cover any other whole chapters in one message, but uh, we are going to just kind of work our way through here for a little bit uh, in this book and uh, probably a couple of times in here branch off just a touch uh, and then come back to it. But uh, 1 John chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. I pray that you would... Uh, move in a mighty way, and I pray that you'd give me clarity of uh, thought and ability to explain where uh, the verses make sense, and Lord, that we can take the truths that are packed into these two verses and uh, really apply them to our lives today. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. John indeed packed a powerful message into these two short verses. In essence, he says that the Christian does not have to fail. Aren't you glad about that? You know, the Bible tells us that before we were saved, we had no choice but to sin. We were married to it, and the person who does has not been set free by uh, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of Christ. They have to live in sin. They have no other option. But as a Christian, we don't have to. And praise the Lord for that. He tells us the Christian does not have to fail. But then he tells us that when the Christian does fail, but if any man sin. You know, aren't you glad that God makes provision for that as well? Aren't you glad that God doesn't say, if you ever fail, then it's really on you. You've wasted your opportunity at eternal life. Or once you've understood and received Christ as your Savior, if you fail after that, I mean, you have the Word of God. I've told you what to do and not to do. Uh, You have the Holy Spirit of God. You don't have to live in sin anymore. So if you ever mess up again, then you lose your salvation. And you'll have to get saved over again. And we would live our whole lives thinking... I hope somehow I can pray a prayer of salvation just before I die without making any other mistakes before the moment that I actually pass away. Wouldn't that be a horrible way to have to live? Aren't you glad that God tells us we do not have to fail, but that when we do fail, and then he tells us that there is hope in spite of that failure, that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Aren't you glad for that? And praise the Lord for that. It's not an excuse to fail. But I'm glad God has a plan and he allows us to be able to live in victory even when we fail. And so I want to preach this morning on when Christians fail. Not exactly the most exciting sounding topic, amen? Uh, But the reality of it is that's where we live. We live a life that uh, we fail and uh, probably all of us could say uh, that uh, in the Christian life that we have failed not once, not twice, but really we've lost count. There's no way to keep track of all the times that we have failed. And what do we do when we come to those places of failure? Uh, John here is going to help us with that. Have you ever felt like you failed in the Christian life and been afraid you're just going to get buried for it? You know, especially when you're newly saved, there's this idea almost like, uh, man, God must be sitting in heaven, and when I mess up, he's probably just going to nail me. Because that's how we think. That's how we operate as human beings. And uh, the reality is that that's how the gods who are made up in this world, that's how they operate. 
you mess up, you're going to pay for it. You mess up, I'm going to nail you. And, and we can have the idea that if I fail, if I make a mistake, if I don't do everything just perfect, almost like we're living on pins and needles, that God may just in heaven uh, hit me with his uh, heavenly billy club. I mean, God in heaven, I mean, I might get buried for messing up on this thing. Heard about a little girl named Nancy. Nancy was out in the garden and she was filling a hole in as her neighbor looked over the fence. There was a privacy fence there. And the neighbor looked over and he said, Nancy, he said, what are you doing? And Nancy looked up and there were tears running down her cheeks. And Nancy said, my goldfish died and I'm just out here burying it. The neighbor said, oh, Nancy, I'm sorry. And the neighbor looked for just a second and started thinking about it. And he said, Nancy, that, that looks like an big hole for a goldfish. And she said, that's because my goldfish is inside of your stupid cat. (laughs) You ever afraid you'll get buried for making a mistake, amen? Uh, Let's examine quickly this morning four steps to living the victorious Christian life. You know, the reality is this, in the Christian life, we can live in consistent victory, surprised by occasional defeat. Or we can live in consistent defeat, surprised by the occasional victory. Which way are you living this morning? Are you living in victory, surprised by defeat? Or do you live a life filled with defeat, surprised when victory happens? I want us to see here, first of all, the rejection of sin. And we see that this is a command. John tells us, my little children, really just a a term of endearment here. He's not just writing to uh, young people in age, but he is writing to this church, and uh, he is calling them his little children, those whom he loves so dearly. And he says, my little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. In other words, he tells them here, and he's, he's putting it in a uh, commanding manner that uh, he is telling them, you, you must not sin, that you sin not, you cannot sin. This is a command from God that there must be a rejection of sin. The word translated ye sin is the Greek word hamartite, and uh, it is a, a word that has a lot of different elements to it. The first one is its tense, and I don't normally go into all this, but I want to give you this because it makes a difference, and uh, so keep up with me, and I'll explain it here in just a second uh, if it's not quite connecting, but uh, it's in what's called the errorist tense. In English, we don't have an errorist tense. Praise the Lord for that. It's a pain to try to figure out. But uh, they have an errorist tense in Greek. I used to walk into Greek and think if I can just survive one more day. Uh, and, uh, but I survived, and praise the Lord for that. Now I just use tools, and they tell me what this all means. Uh, the errorist tense shows action as a snapshot event with no consideration to process, and it is very summary in nature. So here's what he's saying. He's not saying... Uh, that uh, when we look at our life, there's, uh, that, that there is this uh, planning and all that kind of, he's not saying don't plan for, don't uh, ever uh, anticipate and don't uh, look forward to sin, don't have this process of sin. In this word, what he's saying right here is don't sin. Not just don't plan to sin, not just don't have a consistent, but, but the word itself. Now we're going to see a little bit more than the word itself, but what he's saying is in the moment of time, don't sin, that ye sin not. In other words, in the moment of time when you come to a place of decision, you need to reject sin. You need to say no. Uh, there's no justification for it. There's no time ever for the Christian to say, well, you know, I mean, everybody fails sometimes and, and everybody makes mistakes. And I know I really shouldn't, but you know, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. 
There's no place for that in the Christian life. So that's what John is writing. And John writes this letter very much in black and white. There's really no gray. Uh, John is very much, this is just the way that it is. And, uh, and it needs to be this way. And so you must not uh, enter into these things. It's a very uh, commanding way that he's saying this. This is also then, uh, there's a tense in Greek, but there's also a voice. And it's in the active voice, which signifies that the subject is performing the action or is in the state described by the verb. So we are not uh, to be, and this is where it tells us this, to be presently living in or presently performing sin. So here's what John's saying. In the moment that you come to a decision to either choose to do that which you know is wrong or choose to do that which you know pleases God, you must choose what is right. There's never any place to make justification. But we understand, and he's going to get to the side that we do fail. So here's what he's saying. Now, we should not live then a lifestyle that is consistently uh, choosing or that is consistently in failure or where when we come to those moments of decision that we are choosing the wrong thing. Here's what it would work out to. There ought not be any habitual sin in our life. There should not be any dominating sin in our life. Uh, There should not be anything that rules over us. There should not be anything that is uh, that which we are consistently living in or that which we are consistently choosing. Uh, Holiness is the natural state of the Christian because we've been given a new nature. We've been given a holy nature. Holiness is the natural state of the Christian. And yet I fear that uh, oftentimes we tend to live in the unnatural state of unholiness more than the natural state of holiness. And that's what John's dealing with here. That's what he's writing. He's saying, hey, don't live in a state of unholiness. Don't live in a state of sinfulness. Don't live in a state where you're consistently, when you come to that moment of decision, choosing sin over choosing that which is right and that which is holy. He's not saying that if you ever mess up or if you ever sin, that you will lose your salvation. Some have tried to take this verse and say that. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that uh, any wrong decision, even if you knew that it was wrong, will cause you to go to hell for all of eternity or need to be saved again. That's not the reality. But the reality is this. Those who know Christ as their Savior, their eternity is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. It is already determined and it is clung to and held to and and, uh, protected, preserved by God himself, by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that in John uh, chapter 27. And so here's what he's saying. Your eternity is secure, but you need to have a personal relationship abiding in Christ that's not saying I'm choosing the things of this world over choosing the Savior on a regular basis. You need to, on a regular basis, if you're going to live a normal, successful, joyful, peaceful, happy Christian life, then you must choose Christ and you must reject this world. And that must be the consistent state of your life. And it happens in moments of decision when we say no to an area of sin. So John really boils this right down. He boils it down to the daily life of the Christian. We must be rejecting sin. This word then, finally, it's a subjunctive word, which presents the action as being probable or intentional. So here's what he's saying. Sin should not be the probable outcome of our lives. And sin should never be the intentional outcome of our decisions. Have you ever had an intentional time where you intended to sin? You say, oh, no, 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 it never happens that way. (laughs) Maybe you haven't. I have. 
I've had times where I come to a decision of life and I know what's right and I know what's wrong and I choose to do that which is wrong. Now I know I'm a reprobate and probably nobody else in here has ever done that and you make the right decision when you know the difference, right? No. So what happens? We're breaking this command. Because he's telling us it should never be the intentional outcome. In other words, when we know right and we know wrong, we should always choose what is right. But none of us does that all the time. And when we know right from wrong, we should, uh, not only should we make the right decision, but it should be that somebody else can look and say, you know, they're probably going to make the right decision. It should not be probable that we will end up in a place of sin. Uh, That means that there's not a consistent pattern of that in our life. So we see here the rejection of sin. We see it's a command, and it's something that is dealing with the consistent lifestyle in which we are living, but it boils down to the moment-by-moment decisions. You made a decision when the alarm clock went off this morning to get up out of bed, uh, to uh, throw uh, some clothes on, and uh, probably throw your hair at least close to where it goes if yours stays there. Mine doesn't as well as it used to. And uh, you, you probably brushed your teeth and did some of those things and you got around and you chose to go get in the car and to come to church and to be in church this morning. You knew that there was a right decision and a wrong decision. Being in church versus being just lazy and uh, things that, and I understand right now there's some that aren't here and it's not because of laziness, so I'm not trying to blast you if you're online. But, uh, but you made a decision when you came to church that you knew right from wrong. But if you're like most people, now some of you, you're probably the type, you don't even need an alarm clock. You jump up in the morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, you can't wait to attack the day. I have one of those in my house. You know, it's really frustrating. Because the rest of us don't want to attack the day at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we, don't, we, we want to wake up. My wife and I both would rather have a cup of coffee or two before uh, we have kids that are ready to attack the day. But I have a daughter who, I mean, first thing in the morning, she just jumps out of bed and she's wide awake and ready to go. And you know, maybe that's you, but for many of us in the room today, we probably woke up and thought, oh, I'd love to just hit snooze one more time. I'd love to just roll back. I mean, and, and you know, if we're not in the habit, consistent of being in church, it becomes easier and easier and easier to roll back over and hit the snooze button, doesn't it? It's a simple thing, but the reality is this. We build a habit of whether or not we're going to do that which is right, or whether or not we're going to make the wrong decision. And so as we go, it's that way in every area of the Christian life, the way that we speak. Are you in the habit of speaking in a manner that pleases God, or is it probable something will come out of your mouth that's not pleasing to God? The way we tell jokes, the jokes that we laugh at, the way that we uh, interact with others, the way that we treat our spouse, the way that we treat our children, the way that we treat authorities. I mean, we could go to every single area of life. Is it probable that when we get there, we'll make the right decision because we have a pattern of life that is consistent with the word of God? Or is it probable we'll make the wrong decision because we have a pattern of life that is inconsistent? with the word of God. So that's where uh, John is bringing this all down to. And he tells us there must be then this rejection of sin. There must be this, uh, our life should not have a pattern of sinfulness. Then he tells us of the reality of sin. He says that you sin not, middle of verse one, but then he says, and if any man sin. Isn't that a nice way of saying that? I mean, John's pretty kind here. If any man sin, all right, who has not sinned since the moment you got saved and you didn't get saved this morning? (laughs) 
I mean, unless you got saved on your way in, maybe you might be able to raise your hand. But the reality of it is this, we've all messed up, amen? John could have said, and when you start messing everything up in life, instead he says, but if you do sin, he says it real kindly, and if that were to happen, aren't you glad because we come to this and we say, yeah, that's happened in my life. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've made bad decisions. I've come to times of life where I've had sin that has uh, become habitual sin or sin that is uh, besetting sin that is consistently there. I've come to a place in life before uh, where, where it was probable that I would fail in an area or another area. And, and I've been in those places. And, and maybe today you say, you know, there's something in my life. I don't know how to get away from it. I don't know how to break that bondage. I don't know how to uh, deal with that area of sin. It just seems like I try try, and I'll tell God I'm really serious this time. I'm not going back to that, and no matter what I do, it seems like I struggle with it. It seems like I keep failing, and it seems like I keep coming back, and and there it is again, and and there's the reality of sin, and that is the flesh. If any man sin, the reality is we are sinners. Yes, we have a new nature, but that old nature's still there, and it's still warring, and, and yes, positionally it's dead, but it sure doesn't feel like it's really dead sometimes, does it? We do sin. We do fail. So John gives us then the question, uh, the answer to the question, what happens when I fail? If any man sin, now here's the answer. We have an advocate with the Father. What a truth. What a reality to have an advocate. So we see the rejection of sin is a requirement, it's a command. The reality of sin is there because of our flesh. But now I want you to think about the ramifications of sin. There's two things that happen, two, uh, and, and certainly we could go beyond two, but uh, two on, on this level that happen, two things that happen in heaven uh, that uh, when we sin, these two things take place, and, and that is, number one, Satan accuses. The Bible teaches that, we'll see it here in just a minute, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and Satan comes in and says, hey, hey God, did you see what he just did over there? Hey, God, did you see how she just messed up? Did you see that sin? Did you notice your children? (laughs) I guess you're going to have to judge them and throw them in hell now, huh? He's accusing. By the way, he wants to accuse you in your own life. But he's more than happy to stand at the throne of heaven. and, And you say, why does God allow that? I don't know. But he does for now. Satan is standing, apparently all the time, making accusation and making accusation and making accusation and making accusation. And and he's standing there, and I don't know that everything that we do gets an accusation. I don't know exactly how it works, but I know he's there all the time, accusing and accusing and accusing. So the ramifications, when we sin, now there's accusation that can be made. Satan is the accuser, but not only that, Satan accuses, but we have an advocate. If we put it into the sense of a, a court trial, there is that uh, accuser who comes, that, uh, that, that one who comes as a lawyer who is trying to make the accusation stick to the defendant. And then there's that defense attorney who rises. We have a defense attorney, we have an advocate, we have an intercessor, we have a helper. That word uh, uh, that is translated advocate is used five times in the New Testament, but only here is it translated advocate. It's interesting, this word is really only used uh, as one other thing, translated as one other thing. All four of the other times, it's used in John's Gospel. All four of the other times, it's not John who used this word, it's Jesus who is speaking and used this word. And all four of the other times, this word is translated as comforter. And all four of those times, he's referring to the Holy Spirit of God 
coming and taking residence in us. It's interesting, Jesus says you have a comforter. You have a comforter, you have a comforter, you have a comforter. There's one that's coming, I'm sending him. He's praying it there in John 16 and he prays about that. And and Jesus uses the same word to speak of the Holy Spirit. The one who comes, the one who is uh, on our side, on our behalf, the one who is caring, the one who is comforting. Now John, having heard Jesus use this word apparently and and, and having recorded this word in his gospel of Jesus using uh, this word and talking about the Holy Spirit coming, now he tells to, to us, he says, listen, you have a comforter you have here translated an advocate and it's it's the holy spirit yes but it's jesus himself the righteous he's the one who's your advocate and jesus told that there was a comforter coming but that comforter is the one who tells us jesus is the one who's the advocate and john by the inspiration of that comforter is now speaking by that inspiration of the one who's the advocate at the throne And so John here, the only other time that I can find that this word is used, he tells us of this advocate. An advocate means a mediator or one who speaks on behalf of another. John says if a Christian ever sins, he does have an advocate. When the Christian sins, he's not carrying it on his own. And when we fail in the Christian life, we're not left on our own. God does not bury us. God does not hammer us from heaven. Oh yes, there is uh, often, a, a uh, in fact always, there is a penalty that comes. Uh, certainly there is ramifications that come. There is, uh, God chastens those whom he loves. And, and so the reality is there's chastening that comes from sin. But it's not that God in heaven says, I'm just done with that person. Aren't you glad? And it's not that God says, I'll never forgive. I'll never have anything to do with you again. I don't know about you. Sometimes uh, somebody can, can hurt us so bad that we think it's hard to forgive that person again. You ever had anybody like that? And you know what God does over and over and over and over on a daily basis? We do things, we say things, we listen to things that are an affront to the holiness of God. And yet every time we come, he just as willingly forgives. And every time we come, we still have an advocate with the Father. We're not taking away the idea of chastening this morning. We're not saying that there's never a penalty that comes. We're not saying that there's never hardship that comes. What we are saying is this, relationally, God always is willing to forgive and continue and have that relationship and have a closeness again that we can abide in him and he will abide in us. What a joy that no matter how far we stray, we know that the loving arms of the Father await when we come home. No matter how much like that prodigal we may be and run and and use even life for the very opposite purpose of what God has planned, that when we come to him, we have an advocate. And he willingly welcomes us in and, and there's the relationship that is there. Praise God, we have one who is speaking on our behalf. We also have that accuser. Turn with me. Keep your finger here. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 12. Just the next book over. uh, The very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12. I want you to see two verses here that help us to kind of define what we're looking at and talking about. Verse number 10 is going to give us the definition of the accuser. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 10. John, of course, writing this also. He says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Here he is, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God 
day and night. Notice who that accuser of the brethren is. Back to verse number nine. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. That's that accuser. That's the one that is talked about uh, there in, in, in verse number 10 of chapter 12. That's the one that God in his great power and glory came and he dealt with him. And there's a day coming that that accuser who's standing at the throne making accusation against the brethren, one day he's going to be dealt with. I look forward to that day, amen. I'd like to have a front row seat to watch him get dealt with. And, and I've seen the way that he fights. I've seen the way that he paddles. I've seen the way that he destroys families and, and how unfair and how wicked and how uh, damaging he is. Oh, what it'll be to one day watch when he's done accusing the brethren and he's done destroying lives and he's done destroying families and he's removed and dealt with eternally. That'll be a great day. But the reality is that that's not two days. So this is what's happening in heaven now. He's accusing. One day that great accuser of the brethren, though, will be cast down. Then look over at verse number 11. And they, that's the believers, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. God gives us here by uh, revelation, as John is writing, he gives us three ways that that accuser will be overcome. And really gives us three ways that we can be uh, taking note of that we can overcome the accuser. Number one, we see the foundation of victory is the blood of Christ. And the truth is this, if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I'm, I'm doing all that I can to try to uh, overcome just uh, the way that I feel and, and the emotions that I have. Or uh, maybe you say, you know, I struggle with anxiety and, and all these different things. I'm trying as best I can to overcome all that. And, and, and you know, I'm trying as best I can to get to heaven. And, and, and I'm trying to be a really good person. I'm doing all these things to overcome all this stuff because I, I know I've got to really do good and I've got to really try hard and I've got to do everything I can. You know, that'll never give you victory. It'll never give you victory in this life. It'll never give you victory in the next. The reality is there is one foundation for spiritual victory, and that is the blood of the Lamb. We see the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. That is the hope of victory. And so we see there's a foundation here, and the foundation where it all begins is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where salvation uh, stems and, and begins from. That is where, and we'll see that more in just a moment, uh, that is where victory comes from. That is where not living a life that is uh, just filled with the accusations comes from. The foundation of victory is the blood of Christ. But then notice this, the next thing that he says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The foundation of victory is the blood of Christ, but the fruit of victory is the word of their testimony. So here's what happens. Uh, when we are living in victory rather than living in sin, we cannot help but speak of the source of our victory. So when we're living a life of consistent victory, surprised by defeat, when we're living a life that's filled with the joy that only Jesus can give, when we have a life that's filled with peace in the midst of the crazy circumstances of life, when we live a life that is victorious Christian living, it's filled with that joy, that peace, God is working and blessing, you know what happens? We recognize it's not me by my strength overcoming all this. The fact is it's the blood of Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross, and now we can't help but talk about him. 
And we can't help but talk about that victory. And we can't help but say, you know what? Uh, and when I tried to do it on my own strength and my own power and the best I could, life is a mess. But when I rely on him, when the victory is found at the cross and when the victory is found in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one that takes a life that certainly can be a mess. And, and, and really, I don't understand exactly how and why it's not, but somehow out of that joy and he brings blessing and, and he brings And the victory is in the blood. And so we see here that, that we can't help but speak of that. Uh, living in victory is joyful living. Living in victory is guilt-free living. Do you realize God will never bring guilt? God only ever brings conviction. You say, what's the difference? Conviction drives us to make a decision to get things right. But once I've made a decision to get something right with God, the conviction goes away. Because now it's made right. The relationship is whole again. Guilt, on the other hand, is a feeling. Guilt says, oh, I feel so bad about that. Guilt says, I've got I've to really feel bad so that God knows I'm really serious. See, God never says feel bad. He says get right. Satan comes and says, you need to feel really bad. Oh, you need to be guilty. Hey, if you don't feel bad long enough, then the reality is because you didn't feel bad long enough, then, then, then you're, probably, you're probably not really serious enough and God might figure that out. And so one of the great uh, things that is damaging churches today, that is damaging uh, Christians today, and, and especially in the United States of America, is living a guilt-filled Christian life. It's overwhelmed with all the guilt of sin. Remember what Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind me? I, press, I mean, the reality is we need to be pressing forward to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We don't need to live in the guilt of the past. And too often we live in the guilt and we think, well, I've got to feel bad about it. No, no, no. You've got to get it right. Conviction drives to a decision. Guilt says even once God has said he forgives me, I'm still going to carry the guilt around. You know what? God's already dealt with it. He's already forgotten it. He's already forgiven it. It's been dealt with. It's done. And you know what happens? He puts it in the depths of the seas of his forgive, uh, forgetfulness. The Bible tells us that it's further than the east is from the west. He, it's totally gone and removed. Why? Because of the blood. And when it's the blood, source of victory. And when it's dealt with by the blood, I don't have to carry guilt any longer. I'm set free from that. We don't need to live a guilty Christian life. When we sin, we do need to respond to the conviction of God in our life. And so we see that uh, living in victory is joyful living. Living in victory, it is guilt-free living. We don't don't need to listen to those accusations. Sure, Satan's accusing. And by the way, he doesn't have to trump up charges. Amen? Amen? I mean, he's not sitting around saying, well, what do I accuse Brian Schaefer for? Oh, no, no, he's got a good list. It's not hard to come up with. He's not sitting around saying, well, I I wonder what I could uh, uh, accuse uh, Brother Hammer about. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to accuse him about, but Satan sure does. Amen? Put your name there. I mean, I'm not trying to just pick on Brother Hammer. You know, the reality is this. Satan doesn't have to look very far to come up with a real true charge. His accusations, those aren't his lies. His lie is this, you've got to feel bad about that accusation. You've got to carry the guilt of that accusation. God, you know, he's probably not just going to forgive you right away. The reality of it is we come 
And we say, Lord, will you forgive me? The Bible tells us, 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and he is just. Why? Because of the blood, he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the reality is this, Satan comes with true accusation, but we can say to him when he comes, you know what, Satan, I'm not listening to that. I I don't need to live in the past of that. I'm not carrying the guilt of that because yes, the accusation is true, but it was dealt with over there at the cross. It was dealt with by the blood and Jesus washed it away and he dealt with it. And my advocate said, when I died on the cross, I already forgave that sin. I already dealt with that sin and it's gone. And because of who my advocate is, because he's the one who died for me, and that he's the one who rose again and pleads my case, because of my advocate, I don't have to live in that guilt any longer. We overcome him by the word of our testimony. What are we doing? Well, we're taking the word uh, that's translated word there. It means the content of the message. Testimony means a verbal witness. So here's what happens. Some of you, when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you just start feeling all that guilt or that weight or that pressure uh, of all the things that you could have done different in the past, you need to out loud verbally by yourself there in the car, you need to say, you know what, I'm not listening to that anymore. I'm not going to live like that anymore because it was dealt with by the blood. You need to use the word of your testimony and you need to talk to yourself and say, you know what, self... We don't have to live that way. Let's go back and remember what Jesus did on the cross and the power of Jesus' blood. You ever talk to yourself? You ever tell yourself you're thinking wrong? (laughs) We need to sometimes. And so we come back and we say, I don't have to live in that defeat. I can live in victory, not because I'm great, but because of the blood of Jesus. So we see that we overcome him by the blood of the lamb. We overcome uh, the, the accuser of the brethren by the word of our testimony. And then he says, and they love not their lives unto the death. This is the fortitude of the victor. They love not their lives unto the death. This speaks of surrender. Because of the realization of the work of the blood and because of the fact of their own unworthiness apart from the blood, those people living in that kind of a victory then they don't hold to the things of this life. Why? Because they say, I don't have anything of value in this life. Everything that's of real value, it deals with the blood. It's eternal. We're not talking about not loving people. Uh, We're just talking about, you know, the boat, the house, the uh, whatever, the stuff that that we sometimes get focused on. Maybe for... Well, hopefully some of the younger people, the video game or, or whatever it is, that thing is such a big deal now. When we're living in victory, spiritual victory, we're focused on what Christ has done with, through his blood. We're able to talk of the promises of God and the reality of those promises. And by faith, we're saying, I am, uh, I am choosing to trust that God was right. And when he said in his word, I don't have to live in that, I'm willing to trust that he really did deal with my sin at the cross. And that his blood really does have the power that he said it does. So it's by the word of God, the word of our testimony, that we're taking the promises of God's word and we're claiming it. We're we're living in them. And we're we're trusting him that he is right. And now what happens is the things of this world just don't seem that special anymore. The things that are special are the things that last for eternity. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having nice things in this life. Praise God if you do. But that's not the purpose of this life either. It's not he who dies with the most toys wins. It's he who dies with the greatest service for Christ wins. He who uh, gives himself in selfless surrender and submission. That's what this life's about. 
So John here helps us to understand we have this advocate with the Father. Uh, The victorious believer does not love their own life, but recognizes this life is merely an opportunity to serve the one who they do love. And that, if you come back over to John, is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's who our advocate is. So we're back now in 1 John chapter 2. Here's the one we do love. Here's what happens. My focus becomes all on Jesus. My focus is no longer on these things and those things. And my focus is no longer on on how to get stuff of this world. My focus shifts to how do I serve him more because it's his blood that gives victory and it's his word that gives the promises that I'm clinging to and living in. And so now all I really want to do is give my life to him because he's the one of value and he's the one I love. That's how we overcome the accuser of the brethren. Now, uh, the final thought that he gives us then is restoration from sin. So John says, look, there needs to be a rejection of sin. Don't just live in it. Don't justify it. Then there's the reality of the sin is that you're still human and you have flesh and you're going to sin. So if any man sin. And then after that reality of sin, there is, of course, uh, let's see, what was the next one? The ramifications of sin. Uh, That is, Satan's going to accuse, but you have an advocate. Praise God we have an advocate and we can overcome the accuser of the brethren because of who our advocate is. And then finally, we see the restoration. All right, you've sinned. You have an advocate. How do we get it right? How is it dealt with fully? The restoration from sin. We see that's made possible by Jesus. Verse number two. And he, Jesus Christ the righteous, that's the he. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation, the technical definition, it's a substitutionary atonement. Here's what that means. It's a substitute approved by the judge who is willing to receive my punishment in my place. He has to be approved by the judge. The judge has to allow it so that substitute can stand in my place as me and take my punishment on himself. What an incredible, incredible reality. Dad, can I use you for a minute if you'll uh, come up here? Um, I figure I probably shouldn't use anybody else because we're related. And so if anybody sees us close to each other on the camera, that's okay. We're related. And uh, on occasion, even in the same house and eating at the same table. Amen? And so uh, that's perfect safety. Um, come here. Um, so we receive, where we see here that what happens is the punishment then, it's received as me. So what happens, Jesus came, and when Jesus came, the Bible tells us all of our sin was not placed on him as a burden, but the Bible tells us that our sin was placed in his body on the tree, that by his stripes we are healed. So literally, he became sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus, who knew no sin at all, he didn't just take sin on himself, but he actually became sin. Uh, In other words, he became a sinner. In those moments, not because he committed it, but because we committed it. But when he took it on himself, he took it as his own. He took it. He was the sinner. And so what happens if we could use just a human court, if there was a judge and uh, the judge were to say, all right, you're guilty. And because you're guilty, you're going to receive the lashes uh, on your back if we were to go back to that time. And, uh, And you are guilty. And so therefore you must be punished. And if my dad were to come and say, you know, judge, I'd be willing to take those lashes for him. By the way, I know him well enough to know he would say, if you're guilty, you deserve the lashes. (laughs) 
But if he came and said, I'll take those lashes for him, and the judge agreed, a substitute approved by the judge, who's able and willing to take the punishment for me that is mine, then what would happen is they would take him and they would uh, uh, tie him to that place, that whipping post, and he would be in the place I deserve to be. But he would not be there as himself, right? He would be there as me. He would receive the punishment as though it was me receiving the punishment. But not only that, I would be allowed to stand as one who is innocent, though I'm guilty. And as one who is innocent, I could watch the punishment take place on him. Because he would receive the punishment as one who's guilty, though he's innocent. I would stand as innocent, though actually guilty. It's an amazing picture of love. It's an amazing picture of one who would be willing to take all of that on themselves. But you know, a righteous judge couldn't look and say, you know, I I really like your dad. So here's what I'm going to do. Instead of 10 lashes or or 50 lashes, we're going to cut it in half. Instead of 50 lashes, it'll only be 25 lashes. I mean, after all, he's not the one who was really guilty. You know what that would be? That would be a lack of justice. For the punishment cannot be lessened for him if he's there as me and if that's the requirement of that sin. So all of the weight then of my sin, all of the punishment for my sin would have to be placed on him, positionally, so that he could then go and receive the punishment. And his guiltlessness, his innocence, or this word righteousness, would then be positionally placed on me that I would not be punished. And once the punishment was fully made, then we would both be free. Because punishment had been served. Because the price had been paid. And now the judge could say, I am faithful and I am just in forgiving you because the penalty was still paid by the propitiation. The one who stood in your place as you and who I allowed to receive the punishment for you. Thank you. You can see it. And so we see this picture here. And you know, the reality is that that's exactly what Jesus did for us. And the reality of it is that if you're here this morning and you've never come to the propitiation for salvation, you've never come to the one will take all of your sin in my body and I will become sin for you. And I will take all of my righteousness and place it on you so that all you have to do is understand, you have to observe, and we do that by Scripture, that Jesus died and that He was buried and that He rose again. And when you understand that, and you can simply understand He took all of your payment for your sin on Himself, all of the the weight, all of the penalty of eternity in hell for every person that would ever live, He took all that on Himself. And by the way, it was not lessened in any way. The Bible says in Isaiah, it pleased him, God, to bruise him, Jesus. Pleased him to crush him. Why? Because in that moment, he became sin. And all of the wrath of eternal holy God was poured out on him in our place. You know, the reality is, as a Christian, if we live in light of that, It changes our desire to serve him, does it not? 
The reality is if you're here and you say, I don't know if I've ever trusted Jesus as my Savior, I don't know for sure that if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. Here's the message of the gospel. Here's the message of the Bible, is that God loved you so much that in the person of Jesus, God himself came. And he took on human flesh so that, and by the way, the Bible tells the whole world is trying to figure out how to become God. God became man. He did it for one reason. So he could pay the price of your sin. All the pain, all the guilt, all the weight. But the worst part of all that will be the worst part of hell for eternity, the separation from God. For the only time of eternity, the Godhead was split as God the Father turned his back on God the Son, the one who became sin for you and for me. Have you ever understood the propitiation? Have you ever understood the one who took your place, who died as you, so that you could live as him, stand in his righteousness for all of eternity? Then the question is this, have you ever done anything with that? Maybe you say, Pastor, I know that, I've heard that. Have you ever made the decision to accept it? Because the reality is he died, he paid your price, and he offers as a free gift that forgiveness. But it's your choice to receive or to reject. Have you come to the place, have you made the decision to receive Jesus as your Savior, to receive the forgiveness that is offered? there at the cross. If you've never made that decision, whether you're in the room, watching online, let me encourage you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. This is the time to make the decision. This is the time. Don't put it off. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I hope you'll have tomorrow, but you're not guaranteed. Don't put the decision off. Today, choose to receive Jesus as your Savior. We have several folks that would be more than happy If you're a man, we'll have a man help you, a lady, a lady, and just take you and show you what the Bible says about how to know Jesus is your Savior. We don't want to give you a Baptist idea. We're not trying to, the goal today isn't to make anybody a Baptist. It's not really about any of that. The goal is that you know Jesus as your personal Savior. That's the most important thing. It's not about what our church says. We say this, but it's because we line up with this book. What matters is what does God say in his word about how to receive that gift of eternal life. So today, if you've never done that, would you let somebody, in just a minute, as we have an invitation time, and what we'll do is we'll have everybody bow their heads and close their eyes, and every Christian in the room will be praying, if you need to know Christ as your Savior, that you'll make that decision in that moment. Would you be willing today to say, you know what, I need to make that decision. I'd let somebody show me from the Bible how to know Jesus is my Savior. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I know I'm saved. There's no doubt about it. I, I know the time when I received Jesus as my Savior. All right, good. But maybe you've been a life, uh, living a life that is flooded with guilt. Maybe this morning you need to come to the Lord in the invitation time and respond to him and say, Lord, I need to quit living a life filled with guilt that's coming from uh, the accuser and instead live a life of joy by just responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit And then by faith, coming back to the cross, coming back to that blood and saying, no, it's been dealt with by the blood of the lamb. I'm not going to carry the weight of it any longer. I'm going to leave it there where he dealt with it. And I'm going to get up and enjoy, go forward serving him. Maybe today you need to deal with the guilt. 
and stop living a life filled with guilt and live a life that's just responding to the Savior. Or maybe this morning you're living a life that's characterized by sin. Maybe you need to come and and just deal with a specific area of sin, a specific mindset that's not biblical. Maybe you need to come and say, Lord, would you forgive me for not thinking and acting in line with the Word of God? Would you forgive me? Would you help me to change to line up with your Word? Because that's really what it's all about. Let's have every head bowed, every 